Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to part two of the Stompcast. Adam and I are wandering around, we're in Croydon. It's actually quite a, a mixed kind of park. We've got a bit of trees, a bit of grasslands, there's sports fields here, and it's pretty peaceful. There's lots of birds making noises, some sounds of trams passing by, but I'd say quite a, quite a peaceful space now. No, I, I, I like it. I always like going for you know, a nice little walk, get some headspace. Also, really good for the cardio. Well, there's a few hills. <laughs> we're literally we're, we're ascending a hill here i mean this kind of throws me back actually to a stompcast episode that i did with billy billingham um, but i was expecting to ascend some mountains then i didn't realize it was quite as hilly here but uh, i'm enjoying it it's nice to get the heart going a bit of cardio a bit of mental health is a good mix right indeed indeed now you said this has been an important kind of headspace for you and you talked a bit about bullying I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the work you've done in the disability awareness uh, space and some of the Mm -hmm. most powerful documentaries that you've done. I just would like you to share a bit of your own journey and why you think it's so important for people to to understand. Well, so the the advocacy has always been sort of my my raison d'etre. And the the documentary, the telly stuff, the TED Talks, whatever you you want to pick out of the, the CV. I regard it as a very fortunate byproduct of being very good at advocacy. Again, I blame social media. Advocacy has gone from trying to start a conversation with people who you disagree with to just shouting into the nether angrily. And so I, I very rarely go to the Twitter of advocacy because it's a bloody cesspit, isn't it? Advocacy has become quite combative and I don't want to be part of that that scene. I want to kind of talk to people and I've always said that a good documentary will change what you think. A great documentary will change how you think. Wow. And I'm in the game of making great documentaries. Wow. That's a powerful way of, of, of looking at it. So you have a twin, so I do. Neil. My, my best kept secret. Your best kept, best kept secret. Um, and before we started, you actually said that you're still um, in your, well, you're in your late 30s and you're still incredibly competitive yeah. with each other. Is that a lifelong thing? I reckon, it, I reckon it's a lifelong thing. I reckon, I reckon we're just both that guy. And then it isn't about important stuff either. It isn't sort of like, oh, who's got the best job? Clearly me. It's, you know, even, even, even if you're like watching a quiz show on the telly, he'll, he'll be like, Argh! and I'll be like, dude, I know the answer. Calm down, it's fine. So I'm going to breathe. Take a moment to, to breathe. To breathe and pause. He's, he's the worst guy to do a pub quiz with. Who wins? Well, even if we're on the same team, he'll, he'll like, have to hold the pen. So you're both very competitive, but you've also, had, well, we've obviously got a lot in common, but you've both shared this journey with this condition. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it, because you've both had very different experiences of yeah. it. 
but it's very, very important for us to, to hear this story. Yeah, no, absolutely. So type 1 neurofibromatosis is a genetic condition um, affecting the 17th chromosome of the, the human genome, has a prevalency rate of 1 in every 2,300 births, putting it just on the cusp of being classified as rare. The benchmark for a rare condition is 1 in 2,000. And you have the genotype, which is the genetics themselves. And you have the phenotype, which is the way the genes choose to manifest or present themselves. And I've got a lot of these, the physical symptoms. The condition is, is characterised by the growth of non-cancerous tumours called fibromas on, on nerve endings. In, in the same way that our cables are wrapped in plastic, our nerves are wrapped in cells called Schwann cells. And the condition means that those cells multiply exponentially. And so I got a lot of these, the, the tumours. Neil has short-term memory loss. Or I, I think I'm going to butcher this word. Diamsophatic amnesia is, is the term I, I've heard used. What does it mean? I don't know. But when I say it, I sound like a dude. You sound like you and sound like all boss. that matters. Well, you've actually explained that, you know, in incredibly well and that point around genotype versus phenotype um, which, which, which is really interesting and it's such a complex science because of course in the past we thought that you know broadly that all genotypes were either you either switch them on or, or they're switched off and you'd see that in the phenotype and that was like all predetermined but now obviously we've learned more and more that depending on what we're talking about here um, you know the environment can have a huge impact on the on the on the phenotype so you know talking about cardiovascular conditions some conditions like that for example or even like likelihood for issues around like blood pressure or, or whatever you know your kind of ability to uh, modify or adapt but other things are are much more like this is the genotype and then the phenotype kind of presents so you both have had very different experiences so yours perhaps more physical his have been affecting like epilepsy and memory loss i mean when did you find out about the condition and was it kind of quite confusing for you and the family to kind of see, well, hang on, it's the same thing, but there's such a different expression of that, um, that condition? Yeah, and also we, we um, started um, expressing our conditions like quite, quite far apart. I started presenting when I was like five years old, and that was like, what, 1990. So diagnostic medicine wasn't what it is now. I think our diagnosis consisted of a doctor reading out a definition from a dictionary and patting my mum on the hand. And to this day, I still don't know how she didn't kill him. And then Neil started his um, journey, if you will, when he was 14. We were out on a, a Saturday night at like a, a church youth thing. And then we got home and couldn't remember where we'd been. And so we just thought either he's tired and a bit hydrated because it was the summer, or more than likely, he's just playing silly bollocks with us and it'll go out of it by the morning. But no, so then that was a much longer journey to get to the, uh, the bottom of. And my, my dad, unless he used to panic in those situations, even when I got diagnosed, he was told not to do any research. Straight down the library, straight there. And then when, I think when Neil lost his memory, his research was renting the movie Memento. And I was like, really, really? You think this is what they wanted you to yeah, this is going to help. I guess people try and deal with things. And, and yeah, yeah. Them. It's tough. I, I look back at it now and it's quite, it's quite funny. Like we were going to drag him to Time Bomb in Croydon. 
and get all these like revision notes on him. It must be pretty tough to have, you know, a situation where you know you're you're that young. I think you're saying you're 14 or 15, and then you know, your brother's memory's gone. He can't remember what what they've ju just done, and you're all trying to work it out. And I think what you kind of alluded to there is that the understanding amongst the medical community isn't it isn't necessarily that strong in terms of like you know a lot of the time you might speak to a GP you might speak to one GP who's really kind of knows a lot about it or understands quite a bit another one may not and and that must be quite a challenge where you're kind of like trying to learn what this is and how do I deal with it how do I navigate this but also perhaps you're not always met with professionals or people in that space that that do also feel comfortable understand the topic that well. No, and we, we've always been, or I've always been quite fortunate where I've always had access to good hospitals, good experts. And I'm, I think there's a lot to be said for trust in the experts as well. I think a lot of the time we can poo-poo expert knowledge. And if we hear something we don't like, we're like, well, I'm going to go get a, a second opinion. And then a third opinion, a fourth opinion. If someone who's been to, like, medical school for like 15 years, tells me something. More than likely they're right. So you, you, you go with it. I think I had the same surgeon for like 23 years or something insane. So really, you know, what I'm really keen to do is to kind of, you know, allow the space for understanding and, and education because I, I'm a big believer that education is so important. And I, everyone learning, you know, a little bit about these things can really help because you never know in life, you know, what you might face and what might happen. But also, it's an opportunity to you know, improve our own knowledge and understanding, even if these things don't directly affect you. So I wonder if you could like, share a little bit of, you, know, you mentioned your surgeon, uh, you mentioned healthcare professionals. What support out there is available? What treatments are available for the condition? And yeah, like what have you experienced throughout your life with it? So I, I've racked up some, I think, 39 surgeries now, 40s in, in the books. But there are also other treatments that are available now that are currently going through trials that we went and looked at in Washington in, in one of my documentaries. And there, the whole medical side is, is great and cracking. But then there's the whole social side where I think sometimes we forget that disabled people are people. Yeah. And I think very often when we meet disabled people, we're like, oh, how can I fix you? And not just, hey, how's your day going? Like, mate. Yeah. The um, kind of, the, kind of uh, we, you know, the, the kind of thing that we used to see in medical school is we would label people by conditions, like diabetic patient or bipolar patient, rather yeah. than like pet person who is currently a patient with this. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, you kind of see it. It's, you, know, you have to kind of untangle all that and go, hang on, there's a person first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Then start with that, you know. And, and we forget that. And then, and because then, when you start doing that, that's when you go down the route of um, putting disabled people in, in like monoliths. And I always say, if you've met a disabled person, you've met a disabled person. Congratulations. But also the, the attitude around it is slightly, um, not, not concerning. I think that, that's an alarmist way to say it. But um, statistically, 80% of disabilities are acquired at, at working age. Only, only a very small percentage of disabled people are born, born disabled. Mm. And it, it, it's unique in terms of other protected characteristics where it isn't mutually exclusive. Mm. So anyone at any point could become disabled. 
And, and when that happens, how would you want to be treated? How does your life change? How does your world change? And once you know all that, why not start building that world now where we're treating disabled people as people rather than, I don't know, problems that need fixing or burdens on society or like a different class of, of human. I mean, yeah, it, it, when you put it that way, I mean, it's so powerful to listen to. And I guess, I guess my question from that is, how do you find a balance, I guess, in focusing and like creating equity whereby the you know, equity of health and support and opportunity whereby you're trying to support people who've maybe faced challenges with either physical disability, uh, a mental disability, whatever it might be. How do, you, how do you provide equity of opportunity and support while at the same time actually just treating that person as a person? I don't know if that's a stupid yeah, question I, or not. It, but... it's, it's, it's where's the difference between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome? Yeah. Because I'm not a quantity of, of outcome, not here, not here for that. I want equality of opportunity. Sure. And it's all, what reasonable adjustments can we, we make to our physical environments and our day-to-day -day lives that give disabled people an equal foothold to be the best version of themselves, mm. either in the workplace or, or in their, their social lives. Has that changed, the, the kind of approach that the public asks you? I mean, certainly the work that you've done has clearly you know, raised you know, awareness. There's been, I mean, in, interestingly, I, I spoke to the other day to um, Neil, I forget his surname actually now, but um, one of the uh, producers worked at uh, Betty, but also he's worked across different production companies and he um, worked from, uh, on Undatables for, from the start. And he said they, they kind of their goal was to create a show that, you know, rather than going, all right, let's do a show about, you know, disability, let's do a show about people. But it would yeah. have, you know, and, and, and then the distinct difference being that it's a, ultimately it's a dating show. Isn't it? It's a it dating is. show. It's about yeah. people who date, but also through that medium, you learn, you educate, and you, you, you kind of you open people's awareness. I guess you know. Do you think shows have helped? And yeah, do you think the landscape has changed? And what more do we need to do? I, I think shows like that have, have definitely helped. I don't think they get made the same today. I, I think things need because it was the undateables for the time was great, but it is just. Uh, a show about people dating are disabled. And I think now there needs to be a bit more integration. And I think now we need to have disabled contributors on shows where their disability isn't mentioned or isn't the, the raison d'etre. So back to that point, really, where you're saying treat people like people. Yeah, in inclusion. Like, I, I'm very fortunate now where I can go on, on the telly and just either do the papers on Sunday morning live or like, completely screw the pooch on MasterChef Oh, that was a low moment for everyone. <laughs> I was I was on MasterChef, and uh, yeah, shall we just say um, the least that was said about my experience there, the better. I managed to undercook. The one thing my mum said going on that show, so she don't undercook the meat. If you cook chicken, don't undercook the chicken. So obviously, I went on the show and I undercooked the, the chicken. So yeah. again, mum was right. Thanks, mum. Cheers very much. It really helped. I undercooked the chicken. I'm just trying to take us under a little bit of a. A dry patch for a minute. We've got about 15 minutes, but I just want to not have you soaking wet at the end of this uh, conversation. Um, yeah, so that was a bit of an experience itself. So inclusion, people as people. It's really interesting to hear you say that and to put it that way because you're right. I mean, like it may well have been dating, but it was wasn't just about like seeing people as 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 
just people, right? We're looking at a subgroup of, of society. Do you see, is that being heard and seen within television or within media, do you think? Are you seeing that? Are we, are we really there are yet? The, the disability metrics are, are going backwards. If you look at all the annual reports, uh, the, the big players like the BBC. I, I think uh, there's only, what, 2% of on-screen representation is disabled and three, maybe four off-screen. And that's to represent a, a cross-section of the population that make up 20%, like one in five, maybe even one in four now people, are, are legally classified as, as disabled. And that's quite a big... That's quite shocking, to be honest, isn't it? That's pretty shocking. I didn't realise that, that that was quite... I, I mean, that is pretty... Like, I'm more just shocked, to be honest, to hear that. What, what, so I guess I'm, not, I'm asking if you're the oracle of all this uh, uh, knowledge, but like, what, what, why? Like, if we're if we're trying to be progressive in this space, why are we going backwards? I think they have had other priorities, like rightly or wrongly, because there, there were shortcomings everywhere, and you can't fix everything at the same time. You need to address imbalances in other places first, but you can't increase representation in one area without decreasing it mm. elsewhere. It's the idea of, um, in economics, we call it Pareto efficiency. You can't make someone better off without making someone else um, worse off. But I just still think there's this massive disconnect there. And there's a real confusion between disability and inability. And I think we'll think they're the same thing when, when they aren't. Could you explain a little bit then what the difference is for us to understand? So um, inability means an inca you're incapable of doing something. A disability means you can do something, you just do it differently to the way an able-bodied person. That's such a, I mean, putting it that clearly, and, and I think when you put it that way, yeah, you see how it's like, well, hang on, if you're not, you basically, if you're not allowing people or giving, helping them being able to do something they can do, you just treat them as if they're not able. Like, they're not able to do that, therefore we're excluding that person when actually they, they, they can do it, you know. It's kind of finding the ways to make that access and opportunity, isn't it? No, completely. And it isn't hard to do either. Like, reasonable adjustments are really straightforward. And also through things like access to work, you can get government funding to do it. I think it's something like 60 grand per employee you have access to. Wow. To, so you know, to like, adjust desk heights or get specialist equipment and stuff. Just, I, people either don't know about it or no one wants to do it because it's too much effort. So a lot of people listening to this won't be in TV and they won't be working in TV, they won't necessarily want to work in TV. And you've you started mentioning it there. If you're listening to this and you either are a person that's, um, that, that, that's disabled, or as you said, a lot of adults might become uh, disabled, or if you've got someone in a workplace or an employee, uh, an employer, sorry, employee, employer, sorry, in a workplace, what can you do to help change this? So you mentioned there with the, with the, with the grants or, or funding that's available. What are the steps you can take to kind of go, right, either as the person that needs further access or support or as someone that has a business or whatever, what can you do? Well, it's a reasonable adjustment. So what's reasonable varies business to business. Like, is it reasonable to force a, a small independent cafe to install a toilet with a hoist in 20 grand a throw? No, look, that isn't. However, it is reasonable to expect like the BBC or, I don't know, Thought Park or Madame Tussauds to do it. it. It all depends on how big the thing is, what's the footfall, and how long a, a disabled person is likely to be spending there. And you can, you know, you can get people in to do like an access recce for you. 
and you know, look at you and you work out what you're doing well and what you're doing badly. Because I also think it's important to honour what people do well. And again, with like um, advocacy, it's very easy to yell at people for where they're messing up. But very rarely do you hear people go, oh, but you do this remarkably, remarkably well. well I, I go to loads of, of events now where um, Wrexham Football Club, nailing this right now. Wrexham? Wrexham Football Club, oh, well, Barrett coordinator, Kerry Evans, amazing. Um, they, they've got new owners, um, Ryan Reynolds. Um, <laughs> great guy. And, um, you know, they now have, like, rooms with something like, um, for people with, with autism or other neurodivergent conditions with, like, you know, lower volume, lower lighting, so they can go watch the game or be included. Or if they've been watching it and it's all gotten a bit too much, they can go sit in there, decompress for a bit. And, you know, their, their other family members can, like, get a coffee and stuff and then go back. When, yeah. when they're ready, all of the, most of the arena now is like wheelchair accessible. Yeah. And disability is quite weird where you don't get it till you get it. Do you know, there's, um, um, so I've got ADHD and I, um, and, and on the point of shouting out people, I went to Wellnergy Festival uh, a few months ago and I think it's one of the first festivals I've ever heard of that had a neurodivergent space, so a quiet tent, calm, like, um, you know, uh, having uh, things like white and eyes or they had activities in there that were kind of to engage calm because you can become overstimulated very quickly in the festival. And most festivals and places you go to, there's literally you're like kind of there's nowhere to go, right? So fair play to to them. And you're kind of right. You know, a lot of the work I do is in the mental health space, and we're very quick sometimes to go, "This is really bad." But then perhaps to do more of good things, it's sometimes important to say, "This is really great. Let's let's take this idea or let's do this." Like I, I visited a school, for example, where they they, they were training mental health first aid as teachers. They had like. Um, school children as mental health ambassadors and they had a green ribbon idea so if you had done that you wore it it means that you could talk to that person i was like what a yeah. great idea what a yeah. brilliant idea and it wasn't as you said it wasn't that difficult but at that school you could see someone and go that person i can talk to that person and for that for someone that could be the difference you know excuse me to be extreme but it could be life or death to be able to yeah. talk to someone and it's but if people don't celebrate some of the good things of course call out things that are an issue but celebrate the good things we don't hear those amazing ideas either do we not just about no. celebrating people you don't hear the ideas like another case in point um one of the shows that we did at, at betty um with neil as well was one called the autistic gardener um, it's an, an amazing um guy called uh, ironically his name was anna gardner um gardner with autism really good at what he does and we wanted to find another group of, of people with autism to go in and learn how to do gardening. But because it's all in situ, you, it, it's quite hard to tell if they want to talk to you or not. What, where's their mood at that moment in time? How does their hyper-focus work or not work? So rather than have everyone walk on eggshells, we gave them all a, a wristband that was red on one side and green on the other. And depending on what kind of mood they were in, if they wanted to talk to the camera or not, they just turn it to That's such a brilliant idea. green or red. And you just instantly know, and you can, and it's little things like that. And those wristbands, to get all, all 10 and another 18 of them, maybe a tenner. I mean, that's just such a great, because people do, when you, when you said about reasonable adjustments, people automatically think of like infrastructure changes, but that is, let's be quite frank, that's quite, a, like, that's a pretty basic thing to do, but, yeah. but can change for that person, can mean the difference between, you know, having, you know, well, suffering let's be honest will be really d difficult moments for them or actually having a really good experience it's a simple example isn't it yeah yeah I mean, things like, you know noise cancelling headphones yeah exactly absolutely it's not 
it's not something that's that, that difficult necessarily, necessarily or complex, but can make a huge, huge difference. Adam, thank you so much for 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 sharing that with us. It was I was really, really like useful to kind of like cut through some of that noise. Excuse the pun, given what you've just said, um, to cut through that and actually hear some clarity on it. I, you know, that's been really helpful. That brings us to the end uh, of this part. We're going to move on to part three in a moment. So see you all very soon. Thank you so much for listening to this part of the Stompcast. If you're ready and want to listen to the next part right now, head over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe to Behind the Stomp. Otherwise, we'll see you tomorrow.